All right, good afternoon and welcome to It's Lit with Mitch. I'm Mitch uh, and on this podcast, I read powerful literature out loud from beginning to end and I pause to react and make commentary and generally work to interpret and understand that which I'm reading. Uh, if you've been following along already, you know I'm reading the Holy Bible for the first time in my life. And I kind of have this approach where uh, I've, I've been a lifelong atheist, um, obviously from, from a lot of the guests I brought on, I've had a much different, you know, completely different life than what they've had. Um, and so it's been really, uh, truly enriching for me to just kind of start diving in, even though we're only about 115 pages in. But we just finished Leviticus, or I just finished Leviticus, and so I'd like to welcome my guest on to help me discuss and interpret Leviticus, Jordan Pace. Jordan, welcome to my show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, Jordan tells me he's been a Christian since age four, and he was raised Southern, ba Southern Baptist, graduated from a Southern Baptist University with a degree in religion and political science. He's worked as a Bible teacher for a Christian high school. Um, so he's been uh, pretty enveloped in this world. Like I said, we had much different lives, <laughs> uh, much different upbringings that, that have you know, led us one way or another. Um, Jordan, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, and for, for just some reference, I actually only met Jordan this past week. Um, so Jordan is actually relatively a stranger beyond a lunch we had at, I don't know, Moe's <laughs> uh, yeah. earlier this week. So um, for a completely different thing too. So anyway, um, Jordan, welcome to the show. Uh, can you tell me, Elaborate a little bit more on your background with regard to the, you know, the way that you're living your life, how mm -hmm. your faith interacts with it, why, you know, why you would lead off or how would you lead off on, you know, what this all means to you? Sure. So I, like, like you were saying, I've been a believer since I was four, which even when I tell the Christians that are kind of like, really four? Um, the, uh, the cool thing, one of the coolest things I think of, about the Bible is that it's at its very foundation, it's incredibly simple. Like the message is incredibly simple and yet unbelievably complex at the same time, which makes it really good literature. I mean, it's a hallmark of most good literature that it has a simple idea. Uh, but the more you read it, the more rich you become. Um, but as far as my worldview, uh, the more. I've read and studied and come to understand the Bible, the more it's led uh, me to believe and uh, in, increase my faith, I guess, in the uh, freedom and liberty of the individual as what God meant us to be um, rather than a institutionally driven society of, you know, top down, um, which I think it's pretty evident, um, at least from my perspective, in, in Leviticus, especially like if you read the, the story in the Pentateuch, the overall narrative, it's a very decentralized society. There's a handful of uh, like bedrock, foundational, core things that they share, but especially in comparison to the society that we live in, um, they were pretty free, by and large, uh, on an individual basis. Um, but... I try to make everything, uh, all the decisions I make, um, you know, me and my wife, whether it's we're about house, how we vote, where we spend money, we try to frame it within a biblical landscape, you know, kind of a biblical foundation where if, you know, if we can find an answer in the Bible, that's where we're based on um, as best we can. Excellent. And, and, have you spent much time uh, recently? So I guess I'll, I'll say it this way. Leviticus was sort of like, I, I've said this in, in previous episodes, but when I'm going through Leviticus, it's almost like, yeah, the Lord's called unto Moses and he said this, but it was more like God's attorneys called unto yeah. Moses, right? And then yeah. God's attorneys were, you know, giving, giving them the actual laws, mm -hmm. right? And so... 
um, reading legalese is less exciting than reading like the narratives of Exodus or, or, yeah. or in Genesis, right? So Leviticus was a bit of a burn. Um, a slog. Yeah. yeah. No, but not, so, not without its climaxes, though. Oh, yeah. It's got a little narrative in it. Leviticus, honestly, is where a lot of Christians have a new, you know, will always have this new resolution of like, I'm going to read, the, I'm going to read through the whole Bible, like in a year. And typically <laughs> end of February, once the, about the time they hit Leviticus, that, uh, you know, maybe we'll skip this or, yeah, usually that's where the news resolution ends for a lot of us. Well, so talk to me. Uh, so I have what I've interpreted from it, you know, just from mm-hmm. my very first read. I want to know if there's something in Leviticus or something about Leviticus that when you're living your day-to-day life as a man of faith, as mm-hmm. you know, a, a leader of a family, as a leader in a community too, because um, I know you're, you're very involved in that. Is there... <laughs> I want to know what's important to you that you might draw from Leviticus itself specifically. What is it that I'm supposed to, to, to understand that maybe I'm not, or I haven't gotten off the bat. In every commentary I've ever read about Leviticus, the number one motif that everybody always brings up is the idea of holiness. And the, the best summation I've seen. uh, So in, in, Orthodox exegesis, like interpretation of the Bible, uh, everything that if you're reading the Old Testament, the idea is like, how does this point to the New Testament? If you read the New Testament, has a point back to the Old Testament and the gospel. So like the gospels in the New Testament are the gospels according to Jesus. Like it's the good news according to Jesus. Leviticus is the good news according to Moses, mm. uh, that they have the same idea that God is holy as in like completely separate from us from humanity and, and set apart from humanity. And yet he wants us to be holy with him. So he's trying to, he's calling out at least a segment of humanity to join him. And in Leviticus, he's laying out because, you know, Exodus ends with his um, kind of the glory of God descending on the tabernacle and Moses can't even go in like Moses, who is the closest person in the, in the camp to God. God refers to him, like calls him a friend. There's only, yeah. only two people in the old Testament that God refers to as a friend. And it's Moses and Abraham. And even Moses can't go in the tent, but in Leviticus it starts out with God calling him to the tent and saying, all right, Moses, here we go. Get ready. Uh, Cause I'm going to describe to you this legalese of here's the step-by-step process of how you and and my people can be holy and be with me and i think if you can get through the slog of trying to understand like uh, you know the the mixture of fabrics why can't uh, why couldn't they wear clothing of two fabrics or the one that always gets people uh, uh, at least one of my students would bring out to me was the boiling a goat in its mother's milk like why is it prohibited because it's in there twice i thought it sounded like yeah it is and i i was like that kind of sounds like an old wives tale too like yeah <laughs> or, or like just yeah. Yeah. so um, there you are you're definitely correct and it's one of the things that that you know i highlighted and made notes on mm-hmm. on my way through is this uh reiterating over and over that you must be holy because I, mm-hmm. the Lord, your God am holy. It's that yeah. your holiness is uh, your holiness comes from the fact that I am holy. Right. Yeah. It's derivative. And, and, and also act accordingly. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what these laws are for. You are holy and you must act accordingly. Um, and there, there, there were a lot of, obviously when you're reading through Leviticus, um, and and some from Exodus because we've got the the Ten Commandments in there, but you can you can see the basis of our legal system as it stands today, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's really it's very plainly there. Um, some of these things are so common, right? It's mm-hmm. just common law at, at, at this point. Um, yeah. Do not steal. Don't deceive or cheat one another. Um, Private property. This is where this comes from. Not. I mean, so you get the Decalogue. What about like don't steal well, and, from each other and personal responsibility, right? Uh, but in Leviticus, it, it gets expounds on 
just not only the idea of don't steal from somebody. So yeah, personal property exists, but the importance of personal property in the sacrificial system. Like, so if some, if someone in the camp had sinned or was unclean, either one, they had to have some sort of personal property, you know, like whether it was a goat or a dove had to be theirs. They couldn't steal somebody else's goat uh, to go sacrifice it. So yeah, I mean, God, the way I read this and interpret this is God intended from the very, from the fall from Genesis three onward, that personal property was a thing because he, you know, if God is all knowing and all wise, he, he would know that the best, most efficient and moral way to conduct society is private property and free, free exchange of that private property. Can you help shed some light for me on the importance of ceremonially clean versus what is unceremonially un- unclean. Yeah. Uh, they make a really big yeah. deal out of all of that. Um, and I don't know, you know, reading through all the various rituals, they're, I mean, they're, they appear to be obsolete today, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to say there aren't people alive who are following all this. Um, Some. Chap- yeah, chapter and verse, right? But I'm not just anything. curious what it all means. Yeah. So in uh, taken as a whole from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, especially, the law is split up into three segments. So you have the moral law, uh, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. And this is very much from a Reformed um, Protestant academia. So this what the split or um, delineation, I guess, between these really came about about three or 400 years ago with Calvin, you know, John Calvin and Kuiper and those guys, really the ones who laid this out. But the ceremonial law doesn't apply, at least from, from a Protestant reform perspective, would say that doesn't apply to Christians because the ceremonial laws were completed when by Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. So like those are no longer applicable. Um, a handful are like specifically where in Acts, Peter has this vision on top of a roof about on his way to go see a centurion where Jesus appears to him in, in this, uh, all the, all the unclean animals uh, come down from a sheep from heaven. And he says, these are all clean, go to town. Like they're all good to eat, eat them. Uh, so kind of standing in for those ceremonial things, like these are completed. Don't worry about uh, th- yeah. Spoiler for the future, the judicial things uh, are very specific to their society. And from a liberty-minded perspective, if you look at the judicial laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the context of their surroundings, especially if you look at ancient Egypt and ancient Babylon, who were the, other, you know, the great societies of that time period, the great law-giving societies, the, Deuter- the, the Pentateuch law is way more friendly to um, sojourners, refugees, women, children. Like it lays out and restricts the things that men could like. As, like as far as like divorce, uh, things like that. It, it, I I look at it as a very liberty friendly, especially in the time period, which it, the Bible catches, especially the law, it catches a lot of flack. For modern progressives, like, oh, this is backwards and horrible. But if you look at it in context of its time period, it was actually pretty progressive because it respects the value of the individual, uh, male or female. Did you uh, did you just say something silly, like look at it in the context of its time period? <laughs> right. How dare I? Yeah. Uh, and then you have the moral law, which transcends time period, uh, to, which is you know, the Decalogue, you know, the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't steal, which we still see in common law. Uh, but as far as the ceremony, like what's clean versus unclean, a lot of the food, I think, can be explained as safe to eat. So at pork, for instance, if you don't cook it, especially if it's pork is not raised in a clean fashion and then you don't cook it well, it'll kill you. I mean, you get trichomoniasis. There's lots of horrible diseases you can get from unkempt undercooked pork. Uh, shellfish is another one that's pretty easily explained. It's the, one of the most common allergies. 
uh, amongst people. And as far as we know, anthropologically, it always has been. So God telling them, don't eat shellfish uh, or you know, is a healthy thing in that they didn't have EpiPens, right? So no one's going to die of uh, um, allergic re- you know, shock if they're not eating shrimp or clams. And so those are easy. The, the food ones are pretty simple. Um, as far as the other unclean, like the bodily discharge stuff, which it goes into great detail about, the best explanation I've ever heard of this is like it wasn't sinful to touch a dead body in the context of this time period. The Pharisees later in the New Testament claimed that it was and they were wrong. And Jesus cracked on them pretty hard for it. The best analogy I've seen is like if you go into a bathroom, you wouldn't bring your like if you go to a bathroom and don't wash your hands after you use the bathroom, you're unclean, right? In our modern context. You all, most people also wouldn't cook their dinner and then go sit on the toilet and eat it uh, because that's just, it feels icky and weird. And yet our tooth, most everybody's toothbrush just sitting there in the bathroom and you pick it up and put that in your mouth all the time. So a lot of it is, is cultural taboos. Um, that's somewhat symbolic, but also just if you do this unclean thing, this thing perceived as just not well, so, not bad, but just not clean. So they're, they're sort stuff. of they're sort of uh, along that vein of thought. The way that mm-hmm. I kind of also one of the curiosities I have is that I have a real appreciation for uh, for systems and systems thinking. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about systems and I I like to look at, okay, maybe it's not the way I would have designed a system, but if it works, then a system is going to propagate. Right. That's what humans do. And and human beings had to create Mm -hmm. systems uh, through which they can cooperate with one another in order to progress and grow their civilizations, their societies. Right. Mm -hmm. And cultures and so on. Right. And when I'm reading the Bible, the parallel theme is regardless of if I'm an atheist or if I'm a theist, we have what is essentially a really good system being laid out yeah. through which men and women may cooperate with one another. And yeah, utilitarian laws. Pr- pr- yes, particularly. Mm-hmm. And so in, in this case, you have the beginning, like you, we've got a lot of the beginning of individual liberty and mm-hmm. property rights protections, um, the very early days, which, you know, it's going to take a long time to get that further along. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> but it's really, um, there's a lot more in here that I, you know, expected to find. But whenever I read about like the skin diseases, you're, yeah. you're basically putting some of the medical knowledge that they've compiled in here on here's how we mm-hmm. know best to treat skin diseases at this point. There's theology in there, right? There's still, yeah. you know, pray or, or offer sacrifices or whatever. Um, but there's, they're like, hey, if you've got a skin disease, isolate yourself, <laughs> right? Yeah. Don't, Don't spread it. Right. This um, is, is 4,000 years before germ theory existed. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I am increasingly impressed. That's why, like, I, I, I'm telling people that I'm finding it enriching. I'm really enjoying to read because mm-hmm. we're, I'm literally finally reading the system that has, you know, it's still around me today. Yeah. What I'm reading. Right. Um, it affected my life before I was born. It'll affect my life all the way through to the end. Yep. Um, and there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah. But it's That's- really impressive. That theme, what you just said, is basically something I, I would tell my students the first week of class. Like, hey, even if you don't believe this stuff on a faith level, just understanding that it, this is how our society, that this is the framework of society that you live in is beneficial for you. Right. Yeah. And, and so whenever, it also means that there's a lot of great wisdom, though, mm-hmm. right? Because... All of these things that they're putting in here, whether it comes directly from the word of God or whether it's what people have learned altogether and created their own, you know, stories about to pass on the the knowledge. I mean, the stuff in here, those basic laws, where the heck was it? You know, do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Right. 
I mean, I know I have been very involved with entrepreneurs for years and years and years, my, my whole adult life. Mm-hmm. And they know my workers have to get paid still yep. today. And back yep. then, workers had to get paid. If you hire someone, you pay them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Equal don't, weights and measures. Don't twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always mm-hmm. judge people fairly. That one really struck me. Yeah. Because in my view, that's, you know, this would be confirming a bias, but that's something along the lines of like, all right, well, we should have free markets because free markets don't favor the rich or the mm-hmm. poor. I could make an mm-hmm. argument that free markets favor the poor in that it provides for the poor, right? But yeah. in that case, in in just the, you know, making it fair for people to have opportunity one way or another, and then right. everybody has to compete with the same rules, with the same playing field. Yeah, treat everyone equally. The, yeah. the uh, this is a little bit like, like my one of my pet little hobbies, side hobbies, was his ancient history, like learning about ancient history. And you'll find things like almost similar in like the Code of Hammurabi, of court, like quasi fairness. But very much everything, like in Hammurabi's code, is based on class. So if you're if you kill a slave, you have to pay this much. Yeah. Uh, but if you kill a free person, the penalty is death. Uh, and you see a lot of that reflected in the some Roman that, system. Well, and some of that's here at the end of Leviticus. Yeah, like it, it's all kind of tied in there. Um, but it's always brought back to me, like why is why does God care about treating people fairly? Because we're not made equally, like in talents or abilities, like no one is made the same as anyone else. From if your worldview is like um, everyone gets what they deserve, like what they earn. I can see why socialists would be upset about that because not everybody's made the same. So why, like, why is it that God cares um, and wants his people to care about treating everyone fairly? It's something that I've always like rolled around in my brain. The only answer that makes sense is, well, if we're if Genesis is accurate and that we're made in his image, the thing God cares about most, according, especially according to Leviticus, is his holiness, is like his holiness and his glory. And if we're made in his image, if we mistreat other people then we're mistreating his image, which is something he cares about, which is a little bit circular, but that helps me understand, try to understand like, why is it the way that it is? So uh, talk to me about the, so the appointed festivals, there was one, the festival of shelters. Mm -hmm. I was familiar with. Tell Mm -hmm. me about the festival of shelters. Is that still celebrated widely? So, uh, no, I believe the, it is a permanent law. Yeah. Well, sort of. So festival of shelters or booths or tents depends what your translation you're using. The last time we see that talked about scripture is in, in the gospels. Now the Jews continued to do it. Christians by and large have abandoned the ceremonial festivals with the exception of Passover kind of, which we basically just morphed into Easter. Um, but the festival of booze was to celebrate kind of like Passover, like the, the provision of God uh, that God provided for his people in starting an Exodus by bringing them manna and birds to eat and really is a means of, of memorial, which is what all these festivals are for is yeah. within from even from an outside non-faith perspective, the importance of shared cultural norms and mores. Like this is just something that we do, which we even still do today in some life. You go to like small towns in the South and might be this way in other places. I'm not sure. I mostly live in the South. If you go to like a small town, they'll have a spring festival or a fall fling or something that, Everybody gets excited about and does. And if you ask them, why do you people do this? It doesn't really make the town any money. 
probably their answer is because it's what we've always done, right? Because that's where we see people. It's just it's a thing, right? Um, from outside, I'd say from an inside inside the ballpark perspective, the the festival of booths points a lot of this stuff included sets up the ministry of Jesus. Like the whole, everything Jesus does is pointing back to the Old Testament. Um, which is why Christians don't do a lot of the ceremonial stuff like the festival of the booze and the sacrificial system, because that's been the, the circuit has been completed and I guess overtaken. So we still read it. We still appreciate it as the foundation by which the house is built on, but not something that is necessary to keep doing. Um, and this, not all Christians agree on this part, but, uh, even going in the future, like an eschatological, what's going to happen one day in the future perspective. Uh, a lot of people read revelation, like the book of revelation spoiler at the end as something that's most of which is going to happen in the future. Uh, I'm not in that camp. I think most of what happened, most of revelation happened in and around 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem, like Titus and the Vespasians wiping out Judea. We're way, you're way ahead of me. I'm not to revelation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, I would argue the reason that God let that happen kind of, there's this pattern all throughout the old Testament of God's people getting, doing the right thing for a while. Like they get in the system and they do a good, a good job for a minute and then they screw it up and then they have to repent and start over, over and over and over again. Eventually, at the end of the Old Testament, God says, I'm done with you for a while. It reads very much like a divorce at the, in Malachi. And then there's 400 years of silence of nothing. We get no scriptures, no prophets, nothing. Then Jesus, when John the Baptist shows up, and then Jesus shows up. Um, so a lot of this, uh, what was I reading that? I was reading somewhere in Leviticus about the Day of Atonement. I think it's Genesis, I mean, Leviticus uh, 16 or 17. This idea of the Day of Atonement was a huge deal, like the biggest day of the year, Yom Kippur, or Yom Yama, for short. And that's still practiced by right. most Jews. Uh, I'd argue the reason that like Jerusalem was destroyed and God let it be destroyed, Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 and the other parts of the Gospels. Uh, the Olivet Discourse is because the majority of the Jews rejected him as the completion of the law and the prophets, like the ultimate sacrifice and kept doing these sacrifices, which was offensive to God because God said, here, I'm going to finish this thing for you. There's this free gift. You just follow him. You don't have to do the sacrifices anymore. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the, and the leadership and within the temple basically like, no, we don't want that. We're going to keep doing this thing we've always done. And as predicted, I would say, in the later prophets and by Jesus himself, God just destroys the temple, which is why there's not a temple anymore. So even Jews, even the most Orthodox hardcore Jews in Judea or in Israel today can't do a lot of these ceremonial laws because there is no temple. I know that was a bunch. I just bull at you. But. <laughs> no, no, you're, that's all good. Um, there's only a little bit left of Leviticus itself that I wanted to uh, explore because um, we kind of covered a lot of it broadly. Um, but one of the things that also intrigued me was mm -hmm. there, he, the, the Lord is talking about the sale of property and how yeah. when you, when you, when you sell land, it's priced based upon, how many years are left to the next Jubilee, right? Because mm -hmm. you're selling, uh, the person selling the land is actually selling you a certain number of harvests, right? Yep, and, at least basically. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And so what I, that's actually interesting. I didn't even think of it as a lease, but that's, mm -hmm. that's neat. The Lord says with regard to pricing, he's basically saying price fairly, yeah. honestly. And he says, show your fear of God by not taking advantage of each other. Mm -hmm. which I thought was a really remarkable way. Uh, so I, I kind of, I'm, I'm of two minds about this, right? 
an older version of me years and years ago, the intransigent atheist would say, <laughs> show your fear of God by not taking advantage of each other. And I would have a problem with the, the idea of fearing God makes me uncomfortable, mm. right? Because it's supposed to. Yeah. Well, it makes me uncomfortable because one, I am, I, I am very low on agreeableness, right? Mm. And in, <laughs> To me, that just makes it sound like God is a tyrant who is unworthy of my love, unworthy of my praise, unworthy. You know, he's just a gov another government right. to be rebelled against. Yeah. Right. Unworthy. I think that was Ray and Rand's kind of right? idea. Yeah. And so when I when I would hear something like show your fear of God, um, you know, like, like that just grinds me the wrong way immediately. Mm -hmm. Right. Immediate turnoff. Right. Because sure. like, gosh, well, the reason I say all that, because that's like an older version of me, obviously, I'm a lot more open than I am. And I'm, I'm still pretty randy and, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, my general ontology. But when he says show your fear of God by not taking advantage of one another, I go back to that systems because we're talking about mm -hmm. thousands of years ago. I go back to the fact that we had to have a system in place that em enabled men to cooperate with one another. And yeah. so show your fear of God by not taking advantage of each other is just another way of saying, let me word this appropriately, show your respect to other individuals by not taking mm -hmm. advantage of one another. And you need to respect your holiness because if you're respecting your yeah. holiness and the holiness of others, then you are respecting the holiness of God. And by the way, if you reject the holiness of, mm -hmm. of your God who has created you or who has led, in this case, who has led you out of slavery in Egypt, then you're going to be punished. And then he mm -hmm. lays out shortly after, you know, what that punishment looks like. Yeah. And, and there's consequences. Is, and he is, he is, mm -hmm. he's pretty mean in, uh, in the punishments for disobedience. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> but again, just sounds, it sounds- Yeah, I mean, that's it, often it the way- Go ahead. No, so that's often the way it's looked at. It's like, oh, God's really draconian in these things. Like, you know, and this is like, there's a heresy within Christianity called um, antinomianism which like rejects all of the old Testament as valid and just looks at the new Testament. Yeah. Which is insane because Jesus, every time he talks, he's talking, he's quoting the old Testament. Um, but things like rebellious children ought to be stoned. Like uh, the punishment for, for rebellious children is stoning them to death in reality. And in practice, the extremity, the, the punishment that's laid out in, in the, in the canonical law is the, most extreme it's the maximum sentence that can be carried out uh which is kind of was going back to earlier is is limiting what could be done so even with like murder if someone is accused of murder they have this whole system about like refugee cities like you flee to this city and await your trial so the family doesn't i don't know if that's in leviticus or in, in deuteronomy maybe later um, yeah it's probably deuteronomy but it requires that there's two witnesses, like two eyewitnesses that will swear that they saw the murder. Otherwise, you can't convict this guy of murder. Now, you could convict him. He could be convicted of lesser crimes, which is that same idea we have in common law. But this, it establishes like a standard of proof and a maximum sentence. So if somebody kills their dog, you can't go kill them. That's, that's unjust. You know, the most that if you take, you have, first you have to take them to court for a judge to decide what the appropriate thing is. So vengeance is not yours. It belongs to God, which makes a society work much better. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Vikings, you know, the history channel. It's not the most historically accurate show, but the running theme in the Vikings is they keep establishing, you know, they go to Iceland and establish this new colony, but they bring their old ways with them. And at least they have these blood feuds and it's just a cycle of vengeance and back and forth because they take justice or justice slash vengeance in their own hand. But in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it, it lays out limits and a way to live in a society that's just. And like you were saying, uh, it's 
if we're made in the image of God, then not only are we respecting, hopefully getting the respect of others and dealing with others, but I kind of remember the, uh, the Hebrew word for wisdom is a little bit different from the, from like the Greek idea of wisdom. In Hebrew, wisdom is something you do rather than something you learn. So it's much more associated with like doing the right thing rather than learning the right thing, which is why all of, almost all these instructions are active, like do this or don't do this. Mm-hmm. So they're putting wisdom into the practice, which should be leading them to live a more like godly, holy life, which makes everybody's life better. Um, even in Christian circles, there's this tension with a lot of uh, academics and pastors and stuff called theonomism. Theonomism being like we should apply more of the law, like judicially, to society today, which I'm kind of on the line about that. I think going back to, to the least idea, like what would our society look like if the land reverted back to the original owner every 50 years or every seven years, however you want to do it. Like debts being canceled, would, interest yeah. rates would be much higher. It would be a mess. <laughs> <laughs> but it also wouldn't let people destroy themselves into debt permanently, you know, or generationally in theory, um, which people did then. I mean, they found ways around it. And that's kind of the human nature. By the time we get to the New Testament, the Pharisees had found a way around this seven-year jubilee system by if someone, uh, if someone was owed money on a property and it was about to hit that jubilee year, they could sell the property or sell that debt to the temple, like to the priestly government structure system. And if the, the temple was exempted from the year of Jubilee. Now, you're not going to find that in the, in the text anywhere with the temple because the temple didn't exist. It was the tabernacle. Yeah. But they're going to find a way around it, which is kind of the whole point roundabout is no matter how good the system is, if people are sinful and selfish, the only hope for a better society ultimately is selflessness and the way people are Selfless, like truly selfless, as if they're following Jesus, right? This is a perfect example that it was set. That's kind of the whole big circular point of Old Testament leaving the New Testament and then pointing back to the Old Testament is here's all these laws. I know you can't do them, but the closer you get to them, the better your life will be. And then ultimately, uh, here's, you know, Jesus comes on the scene and, and makes it possible. I would say eschatologically to make a more perfect society in the future. Like the more people I would, and I would argue historically, the more Christian a society has become, the better the lives of the people have been, which progressives would eviscerate me for that and probably call me all kinds of names. Uh, And not for everybody in those societies, because we've messed that up quite a bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, ev- ev- everything was messed up in the world up until about mm-hmm. 100 years ago. Well, before, but even if you go back well, 200 years ago, today, things were things were worse 200 slavery. years ago. There's slavery in the world today. Yeah, there's more slaves today than there were in 1860 worldwide, which is a hard thing for people to wrap their brains around. But but most of that slavery, like actual slavery today, is not in places. That adhere to a like a biblical worldview, even even remotely. Um, yeah. Well, that's sort of um, you know they they we talk about like moving into a a more and more secular world, um, you know, more globally secular mm. world. And one of the things that hits me is yes, authoritarian regimes come from all ideologies, all religions, but the most deadly authoritarian regimes, and it's not even close, are the atheist regimes. Yep. Because because there's no reverence for life, 
right mm-hmm. at all. They don't even yeah. they don't even pay any uh, lip service to a reverence for the value of a human life. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're an authoritarian religious regime, you still at some point to have the consent of the people whom you're governing, you mm-hmm. still have to show reverence for human life at some point. Yeah. And so once you establish order, you can be a little bit more peaceful with your with your people, but you may still have your draconian laws or whatever. And so there's, there's also something-, something to say about like the there's going to be some sort of responsibility after death. Like if the leader yes. believes that if, if that, they are adhering to the belief, yes. Yeah. Which restrains them. I mean, if you look at, uh, I know English history better than most of the other Europe, but if you look at British Kings, the, the, the monarchs in, in Britain who were the most pious, like religiously pious tended to either be, looked at as weak at the worst or at best the best light as the the least tyrannical uh um, by the by the populace and the nobles usually looked at them as weak but like edward the confessor life was pretty dang good for if you were a, a peasant in england compared to william the conqueror who was not known for his piety mm. um who and was pretty brutal uh, so that yeah. Well, I mean, he, yeah, I he, he was one of the most brutal of all time. Yeah. So hence the conqueror. You know, <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. So I, I, I guess I'm done. I'm done with what I wanted to cover on Leviticus itself, but I'm just curious on more of your personal story mm-hmm. um, with faith, like how, how would you like to see that more integrated into the world while maintaining some kind of separation of church and state? Yeah, and that's that's the big question within theonomism. We kind of within this very specific niche of, what, of Christianity in which I swim. What I'll so I'm going to interrupt my own question <laughs> um, because at the same time we have separation of church and state, right? But mm-hmm. we're also simultaneously watching new religions be birthed that are yeah. taking over the state. Yep. And because they're not a an explicit religion of you know old theology and old texts, we can't we can't re, you know ascribe them as the same thing as a religion. But we're seeing these mm-hmm. we're but seeing the structures of religion populate within them. Mm-hmm. We're seeing priests, yeah. we're seeing oh, yeah. so, commandments, we're seeing mm-hmm. even holy text. I mean, white fragility is essentially a holy text. It, you know, for this for this decade. Uh, which has even crept into the church, which is something that I'm dealing with separately. But uh, there's this Dutch uh, former Dutch prime minister guy, Abraham Kuyper, uh, was someone I'm reading more of. It's hard to find. English translations of it, and I don't read Dutch, but I'm liking what I've read. He was a reform guy. He was a he was a pastor before he was prime minister. And as someone who's deeply involved in politics with a religion degree, I can empathize with him a good bit. But his his whole philosophy was uh, every square inch of creation, according to the Bible, belongs to Jesus. Therefore, we it's the Christian the Christian worldview. It's most loving to spread this Christian worldview, even if people don't believe it. Life is better, even for people who don't believe it, in a Christian-based society, which him, uh, that thought process led directly to this guy named Van Til. Uh, Van Til died probably about 50 years ago. Cornelius Van Til, Dutch guy, again, but lived in America. And the question he, he kept bringing up in all his works is like, what's the standard like if this is unjust, what's the standard outside of a biblical worldview? Where do you find the standard of behavior? And he asked these questions like, where, how do we find that balance in that that idea? His other big idea is there is no such thing as neutrality. Like there is no neutral ideas. Mm-hmm. If you're positing something, you're making a claim There's that advocacy. this is. Huh? There's advocacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like even if you're saying there like, there is an agenda. That, that wall is blue. There has to be a standard by what is blue and what is a wall. 
because you could be pointing at a pink door. And if there's not an established standard of what's blue and what's a wall, then we can't have functioning societies. Like you can't live with other people well if there's not a agreed baseline standard of behavior. And for 2000 years, at least in the West, that standard in, in theory has been the Bible. Not very well practiced a lot of that time. Um, the, in a republic. Well, it's men who've had to practice it. Exactly. Uh, I don't, the Dutch don't get a whole lot of, of credit in history. Like, there's not a whole lot of people studying Dutch history. Oh, we um, owe them so much, though. <laughs> we do. Honestly, we do. There's a really good book. Oh, where'd it go? I had it over here behind me somewhere. Um, an Abundance of, it's kind of an Abundance of Riches. Simon, Simon Schama wrote it about kind of the transformation of the Dutch Republic, their breakaway from Spain. It was primarily led by this Protestant idea and of, of work ethic, of treating your neighbors fairly. Now, uh, they had to purge themselves of a good amount of you know, racism and that kind of stuff that come along with it. But that's always been the trend. Was, I would say in the Western world, the trend has always been some Christian somewhere identifying the sin in culture. It's like William Wilberforce in, in England uh, identified like, according to the Bible, the way we're doing the slavery thing is wrong, like by this standard and pushed that and he, as a member of parliament, pushed that standard, that ethical standard through parliament, through the government system and made life better, not only for those people in the slave trade, but for society at large, uh, same kind of thing happened in the Netherlands. Didn't really happen the same way here. Um, I'm not a big Lincoln fan. Uh, I think probably because eventually the pattern would have found itself here. Like the abolitional movement could have been successful without killing 600,000 people. Um, given the opportunity. It's just my theory. That's my, you know, 150-year quarterbacking. But I, don't, I mean, that's kind of a rambly way to say, I don't know the answer to that, but I know there's no neutral ideas. So it's either going to be, hey, we're, we're going to try this Christian worldview thing, or it's going to be a not Christian worldview thing. Or I guess the third option is, hey, we're going to, we're going to lift this, idea from the Christian worldview, call it something else and then push it, which a lot of times is what happens. Well, there, there's, I mean, there's a lot at risk um, in abandoning the Judeo-Christian ethic for the Western world, which mm -hmm. it appears, you know, not to be dramatic, but it appears that that's what's yeah. being challenged in the world right now right, yeah. is the entire Judeo-Christian standard for at least the Western world. Um, so that's something that's also in the back of my head while I'm reading this and I'm thinking about systems that have worked for so yeah. long because you can't, I don't want to say that nothing good can come from abandoning that standard, but we're, I mean, that's going to be quite the upheaval. Oh, and if I you abandon think, the standard, how do you determine what's good? That's Van Til's question. That's is, right. What's good? Well, traditionally, when that standard has been uh, displaced, it hasn't been displaced by anything better. Yeah. Um, and, in, and in fact, historically, it's always been something uh, that, that's, that's far worse for the people mm -hmm. who inhabit, um, you know, that to yeah. the citizens of that regime that, that takes over or, or thought. So, mm -hmm. um, all right, uh, Jordan, do you have any additional thoughts before we wrap up or any thoughts as I go on into numbers? So as you head into numbers, there gets, there's a little bit more of a narrative. Um, something I might suggest is as you're reading, as you're kind of finishing out the Pentateuch, maybe not even for this, but to make, what I would argue makes the Pentateuch makes more sense is if you read the Gospels with the Pentateuch, because 
Jesus refers back to the Old Testament and the and the Pentateuch specifically so much that it it's one much closer to our time period. I mean, it's very it's in a Hellenistic culture that Jesus is talking into a hybrid. I mean, it's Hebrew Hellenistic hybrid culture, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more we can identify with today from two thousand years ago than four thousand years ago. Um, and I would argue it makes it make a lot more sense, even in its own context. Again, because if God is outside of time, then he's writing the story all at once. So it's going to be congruous together uh, from that perspective. That would be my suggestion. Numbers is even weirder. I think Leviticus is a law code. Numbers is a law code and some other random stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it, it looks a little strange. Um, just even looking at the first page and I'm, yeah. I'm like, do I have to read out? all the literal numbers. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but yeah. But it sets up patterns. I mean, and that's really the, the thing to look at in Hebrew. Uh, anytime you're reading something that was written in Hebrew, it's, it's patterns and how often something is mentioned. And then finally, anything that's given a lot of detail. Um, so like Hebrew in general is not very detailed in its descriptions of things way that it's written so if you notice something has a lot of detail about it then that indicates that is an important thing that the author is trying to convey like this is a very important thing even without them using because they didn't have exclamation marks like they have punctuation uh, so the more detail it's given to like, skipping ahead to like to to like first samuel it describes saul king saul as tall uh, and good looking whereas you don't really get physical descriptions of almost to anyone else. <laughs> like we don't really know what Moses looked like, um, but we know what Saul looks like. Cause that was an important thing. Same thing with David. Um, so as you go into the numbers, that would be my suggestion. Like if it, if it goes into great detail about something, that means it's important, uh, <laughs> at least to the author. Cause okay. it's, often it doesn't, we don't have a lot of detail. Uh, Noted. Last thing about that would probably be like, the thing that comes to mind is when they're Aaron is being like consecrated, Aaron and his son as priests, and they go grab a male bull. Uh, well, a bull is naturally male. It doesn't go into like the color of the bull, didn't matter, right? It was just a bull. The point was it's expensive, uh, but it goes into greater detail about like what kind of lamb, and the lamb has to be spotless, right? Has to be. You know, all these things about this very specific lamb, which we read in the Gospels, makes a whole heck of a lot more sense when Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God and spotless and et cetera. And like basically these mirror in these descriptions, when he's never referred to as a bull because the bull is a one time thing and it's not, it's not as important. Right. Okay. Um, right. That would be my suggestion. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you very much for joining me, yeah. Jordan. Uh, on you know a Sunday afternoon. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day and I hope you have I too. You too. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye. See ya.